Thank you, Dave, uh, for our Bible reading this morning. Odd thing about this morning's uh, Bible reading, I'm not too sure how I was going to feel about this. I just wanted that Bible reading to be used uh, because I'm not going to be actually using it, like getting into it and unpacking the text and doing that sort of thing. Uh, so it, it's not going to form the basis of this message, but it is kind of forming the basis of this message because that is a text that references the eternal, uh, coexisting, uh, mutual objectives, co-laboring, uh, representation of the Trinity. It clearly portrays um, the, the Trinity in that passage. So it's just kind of like put out there this morning for you. Last week we began this series uh, and, and it's going to carry us all the way up to Christmas. We're looking at our nine uh, articles of our statement of faith, and this series is called uh, What You Believe Matters. Hey, Tom, can you chuck up my little um, rivet? Oh, thank you. Um, slides there. And uh, yeah. As a church, we obviously think what we believe matters because we have a document called a statement of faith that outlines down the particular beliefs that we say uh, someone who calls themselves a partner here at Freeway would affirm and would hold and would be able to say, yep, that's us. That's what brings us together. And last week we said that a statement of faith uh, is this unifying agreement that distills down, that makes clear, if you like, what we believe as a church, And it, what it does is it provides for us this common ground of truth, which then serves as a basis for common worship, a, a unity of fellowship. What actually unites us? What's our commonalities that brings us together? Shared experience of grace, you know, being one. Unites us in our service of Christ as we go and we serve him, we serve the world. And it brings us all together as one spiritual body and a family here in the local church. Like we are... Literally, all, you all over the map it, with our histories, with our experiences, where you are just a bunch of crazies. But when we come in here, we are united in a way with, with certain core truths of our faith. And last week, we kicked them off with the statement, our first statement of faith. Uh, I printed some out this week. They're on the, the, the bench thing desk as you come in if you want to have a look at them. I know you've all got them memorized in your heads and you can recite them to me. But last week's statement of faith was the divine inspiration, supreme authority of scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. And that and we looked at that, that the Bible as we have it, a closed, complete and sufficient uh, revelation from God is divinely inspired and authoritative over all of life and practice. And our response and our responsibility is to let that, let that shape us. God is speaking to us. It reads us as much as we read it. It's not merely information that you read and you pack away and try and impress your friends at uh, you know small group or some Bible trivia night, but, it, but it's transforming us. It's, it's actually nurturing and doing something in our lives. We looked at how Hebrews says it's alive and active and it's getting in and it's doing business. Well, this week we're looking at a statement of faith that the existence of God in three persons, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Christian view that God is triune, or better put, perhaps, maybe, the biblical witness of a God as a triune being. That is to say that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of these persons is fully God, and their three is one. Ah, it's like a Dr. Zeus book. 
And I was thinking for the purposes of today, limits of time. I know last week was 40 minutes. Some of you were getting a little uh, hypoglycemic, sort of tapping out, needing something to eat. Uh, we're going to try and tackle this in three parts. The first one is the biblical witness of the Trinity. Then just some theological outcomes, what that means. And then some practical implications. So we're not going to cover the whole uh, majesty of this topic by any stretch of the imagination. But what we may do is keep it under an hour. So um, great. You'll be able to... And, you know, I've got to be at a basketball match by, t- by one o'clock. So don't panic. Uh, we'll wrap this thing up. Interestingly, while the Bible bears witness to the Trinity, not one of the 8,674 different Hebrew words, nor one of the 5,624 Greek words, and there's a handful of Aramaic words in there, but I couldn't get a number on them. Not one of them is the word Trinity. And none of them have been translated from those original texts into English. And there's 12,000, roughly 12,150 different individual words in the English text have been translated into Trinity. It's not in the original text. It's not in the translated text. You don't find this word. Rather, the Bible bears witness to a God who can only be described by a word that it doesn't actually use. But the realities of this word are found and taught throughout Scripture in in many places. The Old Testament, with its strong emphasis and demand that God alone is God, that God is one, and there are no other gods beside him. That is on repeat, high repeat, the whole way through the Old Testament. Isaiah, the Psalms, Nehemiah, they're all saying, and this strong understanding of God is enshrined in Israel's well, I've called it Israel's national prayer in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Obligation, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And this kind of understanding of his God being one is not abandoned as we go into the New Testament. Writers like Paul speak of God being one. Uh, James mentions that there is only one There is only one God. Do you believe that? Great. Well, so do, so do the heavenly beings. And they tremble about the fact that there is only one God. You can read about that in James. But this emphasis is not opposed to a Trinitarian view of God, but rather helps frame uh, Israel's God as distinct amongst the very many stories uh, that try and that come up from the earth and try and describe who God is as distinct in supremacy and unity and uniqueness. And this God who is one leaves hints and evidence of that uniqueness that leads us also to the doctrine of the Trinity. This begins right out of the gate, Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Here is God describing himself uh, in a plurality of persons. Now, some people have said it's, 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 the, it's the majestic plurality, like the queen would say, we. But that is not what is written there. It's actually a plurality of persons. We find it again in Genesis 3.22, Genesis 11.7. And later on, when God is speaking in Isaiah 6.8, God self-references as a plurality of people when he speaks. And while the exact number is not known, what is known is that more than one distinct person is being spoken of as God. 
The psalmist in Psalm uh, 54.7 has two separate persons being, they're discussing the eternal uh, rule and reign uh, way above the pay grade of a human king, but they're referring to each other as Elohim, God in the context. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.8 applied the identity and the fulfillment of one of these people to Jesus, and the other one naturally stands as God, or God the Father as we would call him. In Psalm 110.1, David writes this psalm, and he says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, uh, I, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. And Jesus, in Matthew 24, uh, 41 to 46, rightly understands that David is referring to two separate people as Lord. But who is King David's Lord, apart from God himself. And who could be saying to God, you know, come sit at my right hand, except someone else who is fully God. David is very aware that God coexists as more than one person. In Isaiah 63.10, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as being distinct from God. And also that this distinct, this distinct person can be grieved has emotions, has feelings. You can upset the Holy Spirit the same way you can a person. Earlier in Isaiah 48, 16, the servant of the Lord, this this servant figure that emerges through Isaiah, uh, who Jesus would identify later on with, says, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. God sends both the servant of the Lord and God as spirit, as agents on a mission to go and accomplish something. The Spirit of God and uh, two coexisting per- persons with two coexisting functions. One is sending, the other is achieving. In fact, there are more than a hundred different times and occasions in the Old Testament where the Spirit is mentioned as the Spirit of God, as a distinct, separate being, and often has attributed to uh, him the qualities, uh, personal qualities and characteristics of, of personhood of a person. In Proverbs 8, 30, 31, we get this personification of wisdom, wisdom being spoken of as a person, but, but not merely a person. He's working as God's craftsman at God's side in creation, but not just working, but delighting and finding joy. So wisdom is pictured as a distinct person, the agent of creation, a role that is attributed to Jesus. And in verse 22 of Proverbs 8, we find God calling upon Wisdom, it says possessing him, and that just simply means uh, taking charge, guiding, instructing, directing wisdom to use uh, her power uh, in creation, uh, in the creation of all things, coexisting to uh, divine persons that work in creation. If we roll back to Genesis, we find the account of creation. We find there the spirit there as the agent of completion, the one who animates creation. Three equally divine persons with distinct roles in creations, acting from one essence. In the book of Daniel, we have this account in which Daniel, he's a prophet of God. He describes a vision where a divine heavenly being in the appearance of the Son of Man ascends on clouds to be beside God, the Ancient of Days, and is given eternal power and a throne and glory and is worshipped and served as God while being beside God in the presence of the Ancient of Days, equal 
sharing the space. Two persons are sharing glory and power and space of God. The Old Testament also teaches that there will be, in Psalm 2, there will be a son to be revered. Kiss this son or man. All kinds of crazies happening to you. So so there's an element of honor and worship and and tipping your hat to this son. A, A virgin birth of a child called a mighty God and an everlasting father. An angel of the Lord, a figure who has a complex and dynamic storyline, on occasion acknowledged as God himself. Throughout the Old Testament, the writers are laying down the context and the categories for God as a trinity, so that as the full view of God and who God is becomes clear, the New Testament writers are able to speak of the functional roles and the triune personhood of God without it appearing in a vacuum. Or as something you know, hitherto unheard of, a, a, an unknown idea. But rather, as they write, they are completely consistent with the God, with the one God who is. In the New Testament, when Jesus enters into human history, he is not only brings a concrete clarity to God, the God of creation, the God of Scripture, but he is also the, the finality and the fullness to the picture of God as a trinity referring to himself occasionally and often as this, you know, as this servant figure, often as the son of man, speaks of himself as being equal to God in existence and knowledge. We read about that in John 8, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And John 17, the, 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 the same eternal existence, knowledge, glory, speaking of and praying to God as his father, but then operating in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is upon me. But then also saying that he's the one who's going to read through John sort of 14 to 16, he's going to send the Spirit. Jesus' claims and descriptions give clarity to the passages in which all three members of the Trinity are spoken of or appear at the same time as being distinct persons and in a relationship with each other and creation. We read in John 14 that the Father sends the Spirit in the Son's name. And then in John 16, all the Father has is the Son, and the Spirit declares these things to you. The Father sends the Spirit of the Son into our hearts. It's Paul writing in Romans and again in Galatians and Titus. Jesus tells us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they are bracketed as being equal Through the Son, we have access in one spirit to the Father. That's Ephesians 2. And the Father's love and the Son's grace and the Spirit's fellowship are always with us. All three, at all times, everywhere. The writer of Hebrews in 9.14 writes, he says this, How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit offer himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Trinity is described there being at work in, in our salvation. The New Testament writers bear witness to the full and complete revelation of God as one God in three persons. Distinct though, in, these persons are distinct in role and function, but indistinguishable in, and co-equal uh, in eternal essence and divinity and glory and power why Paul can write things like this in 1 Corinthians 8. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all 
uh, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And Paul writes to Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And James, as we mentioned earlier, writes in James 2.19, you believe there is one God. Good, that's true. Furthermore, when we realize that the New Testament writers generally use the name God Theos to refer to God the Father and the name Lord Kairos to refer to God the Son and the name Spirit with uh, equal standing along them implying uh, that he has the same divine categories like with the baptism phrase, the Spirit, uh, they're giving us this Trinitarian understanding of God, and it appears frequently in the New Testament, as it did in our Ephesians reading this morning. And our Ephesians reading you know, took us all the way back to eternity and brought us all the way through to completion of that. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul writes this, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers all of them in everyone. And we get similar accounts of the triune work of the one God, the Trinity, uh, in, in other places like 2 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 4, uh, 1 Peter, Jude, all over the shop. From the witness of Scripture, Old and New Testament, we get this consistent but increasing witness that God is one and that, he appear, and that he is in three persons. So we have these theological outcomes. The first is this, that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fact that God is three persons means, though, that the Father is not the Son, nor is he the Holy Spirit, but they are distinct persons. It means that the Son is not the Holy Spirit, nor is the Holy Spirit the Son. They too are distinct persons, in distinct in their personhood. It should be noted, though, that referring to God as three persons does not mean that God the Father or God the Son or God the Spirit, God the Son did, certainly did, or God the Spirit became like human beings. But rather, this is the language of accommodation that conveys that each member of the Trinity uh, thinks, acts, feels, speaks, and relates because they are persons and not impersonal forces. The Son just became incarnate, human uh, in all of those things. That's why when, when we're described as being created in the likeness of God, we have the same personal qualities of God. We're self-determining. We think. We create. We do all kinds of crazy things. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and their three is one. Yet, of the persons of the Godhead, they have uh, distinct functions and, and, and primary functions relating uh, to the world through creation and redemption. The Father plans. You would call that a, a primary function. The Son executes the plans. You would call that a primary function, and the, and the Spirit applies. God the Father is the great architect of creation, redemption, and consummation, who plans, who directs, and who sends. The Son and the Holy Spirit are willingly subordinate to Him in role while being equal in deity. God the Son obeys the Father and accomplishes redemption, and with the Father sends the Spirit to apply the work that he has begun. In all things, the Son glorifies the Father. And God the Holy Spirit 
uh, brings to completion the work planned by the Father and begun by the Son, and all things, the Spirit glorifies the Son. Each of these three distinct persons, though, is fully God. In addition to the fact that all three persons are distinct, the abundant testimony is that each person, though, is fully God. God the Father is clear and most easily portrayed as God right out of the gate. Uh, in the first verse of the Bible, we get that God created the heaven and the earth. like he, that Nothing exists apart from him. God the Father, as, as the creator, is seen throughout Exodus, uh, throughout Deuteronomy, and Isaiah, Jeremiah. The, the narrative continues the whole way through the Old Testament. And that continues into the New Testament. Only Jesus personalizes the fatherhood of God while using the name God and Father interchangeably for how he speaks of God and how he prays to God. And we saw that in Luke, your heavenly Father feeds the ravens, right? And then a couple of verses later, and God knows all your needs. So God and Father are interchangeable names for, the, for God as a divine being. The divinity of Jesus as fully God is testified probably most classically at the outset of John's gospel where we read, in the beginning was the word, and we know in John's gospel when he's talking about the word there, he's talking about the incarnation of Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And the climax of John's gospel is actually the testimony of Thomas. Like we're all like doubting Thomas. John put Thomas in that gospel not because of what he doubted, but because of what he proclaimed. Like Thomas is a jet. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And he is talking to Jesus personally. John 20, 28. And once this fact is out on the table, John says in verse 29 that Jesus did many other miraculous things that, 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 that spoke of his divinity, that pointed to this fact, but couldn't be contained in this gospel. But the ones that he has written would be, says that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Jesus himself claims divinity in John 8. We said that where he says, before Abraham was, I am. He claims equality with God. John 10 and 17, Jesus claims divine prerogatives like forgiving sin and being life himself. In the conversation with Martha, I am life. This is why Paul and the writer of Hebrews have no hesitation in ascribing deity to Jesus. He is the invisible uh, image of God. Sorry, he is the image of the invisible God. He's not invisible. You can see Jesus. He walks around. You can poke him. Um, but God is invisible. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe with his power. And Peter wrote as well in 2 Peter, he speaks of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in a letter to Titus, Paul says he calls Jesus our great God and Savior, the divinity of Jesus is written all through the New Testament. The divinity of the Holy Spirit is mainly testified to his co-equality and statements that we found, like Matthew 28, that we would baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit always appears in um, contingent co-equality with the Father and the Son. But in Acts 5, 3-4, when Peter confronts Ananias about his deception... Peter says, why has Satan filled you to lie to the Holy Spirit? 
You have not lied to men, but to God. And in Psalm 139, David equates the presence of the Spirit with the presence of God. And Paul does a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 2.10. He attributes the same reach of the Spirit's knowledge and perception of things to that of God's. And then finally, the power to regenerate your dead heart, the power to animate you of life, to turn you into an eternal being that will spend eternity with God is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about this in John 3. So while God is three distinct persons, these persons are fully divine. And while the Son and the Spirit have roles of subordination, all three are equal in divine essence and eternal existence. And yet the three is one. It is a consistent witness of the Bible that God is one. From the Hebrew people of Israel, we got that prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. And that travels all the way through to the apostles who also claim that God is one. Paul, We mentioned it before. Paul wrote about it and James writes about it. God is one. It's a consistent witness. But Scripture in this does not ask us to believe in a contradiction. There is uh, a contradictions like things like that. So there is one God, but there, there is no, not one God. That would be a contradiction. Or God is three persons and God is not three persons. Or even God is three persons and God is one person. What scripture says is that God is three persons and there is one God. This is not a contradiction. It is something that we struggle to fully understand or explain and nicely sanitize it or control it or package it up. And people come up with those painfully poxy analogies of eggs and the triple point of water and they're all extraordinarily inadequate, but I guess it's a go. The Trinity has aspects of mystery, but it's not absurd and neither is scripture inconsistent about it. Trinity is not a contradiction because God is, is not three in the same way that he is one. God is one in essence and he is three in person. And as long as the different aspects of the mystery are clearly and consistently taught in Scripture, our finite, limited understanding of an infinite deity should be satisfied with the incomprehensibility of God as something that God should actually be. Like if he's not complex, if he's not hard to describe, if he's not beyond our imagination, what kind of God do we have? Finally, what does this mean? What does this mean for you and I? And this is just a couple of things. The Trinity distinguishes the Christian understanding of God, sets the Christian God apart as unique amongst and as unique in where we get God from, God comes, reveals himself to it. He isn't thought of as up and out of, oh, I wonder what God's like. That's why we baptize with the phrase, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're saying you're identifying with the God of Scripture. This is not a magical phrase. It's not an incantation, or, you know, but it is authoritative and it is the distinctive biblical description of God. And the Trinity also means that the things that we feel, the things that we long for matter, that they are real and they have reason for their realness. That love is not something we think up. 
is not something we define. That relationships are not things that we have thought up and we get to define. They have an, or, an, an objective origin and, and, and a singular God or, or an impersonal thought could not have been these things, could not have been love. The kind of God, that kind of God would have to learn to love a singular God. He would have to yearn themselves for love. But that kind of God cannot be himself love since love requires an object real love requires relationship in the doctrine of the trinity we finally see how love is a part of the fabric of creation flowing from the eternal need nothing creator from eternity past the father and the son and the spirit have been in community have been in relationship they have loved each other They've worshipped each other. They've had conversations with each other. That loving relationship is bound up in the very nature of God himself. If God were not a trinity, but merely a singularity, a divine singularity, he could neither be love nor be God. A religious person will suggest that love comes from God, but Christianity teaches that God himself is love. Love isn't God, but God is love. When Christians teach that God himself, that God is himself love, they are saying that real love has, an or- has its origin and its essence in God. It's not like we think of God and go, oh, he, he must be loving. And no, 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 God communicates of himself to us. And you can have that shape your life as an object of reality, not just as some vague, changeable kind of sentimentality, some cultural movement. And this cannot be true unless God is a trinity. The trinity means that relationships are real. They are not just a byproduct of survival of the species, nor are they a byproduct of a needy, lonely God. God did not create humanity because he's somehow lonely or bored or disheartened by a world without worship, without because God has already been worshipping himself without worship or man's affections, as God needed anything from us that he didn't already possess in himself. But he shared relationships. He went public with relationships, built us for relationships. God was supremely satisfied in the fellowship of the Trinity long before our existence. And we must never forget that God did not create the universe because of what he lacked, but rather he was so filled with joy and his joy overflowed into creation. His love shaped how he relates to creation. That's why, that's why we long for relationships. That's why we crave relationships. That's why we're so devastated when they end. Because in them, we experience a little bit of what God is like. That's the whole point. Jared Wilson of the Gospel Coalition points out that this is precisely what God has done. Communicated love, communicated the want to be in relationship with us. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, takes on flesh, becomes one of us, tabernacles, lives with us, is in relationship with us. Not just to pick up a few friends, but to die that he who is truly love might show true love and give true love and transform by true love, that we might fully know 
true love. Paul writes, while we were God's enemies, Jesus died for us. People who are estranged from God, out of relationship with God. People who are estranged from each other, out of relationship with other. People at distance from God and distance from each other, all brought back together through what Jesus has done in his loving uh, work on the cross, resurrection. It's for this reason that a dude, Fred Sanders, declares the Trinity and the gospel have the same shape. This is because the good news of salvation is ultimately that God opens up his Trinitarian life to us. And this is the hope of all mankind, of humanity, that this, this, this fusty doctrine, this guy says it's a fusty doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, but this is fusty, hard to understand doctrine would actually come to life in us by swallowing us up into the love God has enjoyed since the beginning of time. C.S. Lewis, himself once an atheist, was right, he says. The thing that matters is being actually drawn into the, into the three-personal life. The thing that matters is to actually become part of a relationship with a relational God. And when somebody trusts in Jesus, the Jesus of Christianity, that's what they are. They're, they're adopted into this kingdom, this new people, you people. The Trinity means that our salvation is not a plan B, but was eternally intentional. Our salvation was not a last-minute roll of the dice or some mad scramble you know, to save sinners who just kind of derailed. No, despite our undeserving, rebellious hearts, we are the subjects of an eternal saving conversation. Um, they've read about it. Between the persons of the Trinity... And that conversation began long before God ever uttered light into existence. For those in Christ, salvation was planned and predestined by God the Father. It was purchased and paid for by God the Son and is preserved and protected by God the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not an aspiration. It is the accomplishment of the, of the work of a triune God. The Trinity helps shapes the way we think about the nature of our salvation too. Eternal life is not merely a commodity that we receive as a reward for faith in Christ. Rather, the essence of salvation is being granted access for all eternity into the mutual exhilaration of each person of the Trinity has with one another. Jesus spoke about that in his prayer in John 17. As believers, we will be forever caught in the crossfire of the Trinitarian love and affection. This is what it is to be swallowed up in this relationship. Dr. Martin Lord-Jones, close with this, the doctrine of the Trinity is the differentiating doctrine of the Christian faith. And it is core, it is fundamentally core to what we believe here at Freeway. And it is fundamentally core to our hope and the hope of all that scripture claims. Let's pray. Loving God, we get to pray to you as Father because of the work of the Son 
And the application of that as the spirit who adopts us into life with you and holds us in place in this relationship and then brings us together as brothers and sisters. We have this mutual experience of a triune God at work in our lives. And it's hard to hold together and it's hard to understand. But the realities of life that it brings to life, that love a particular kind of love can be ours, not a, not, a, not a vague one, but a concretely communicated one, that relationships are real and not just finite, that they go on forever as we're adopted into this relationship with this relational God. The understanding of the God as one God who exists in three persons and their three is one, is the greatest hope for the soul, warm blanket. And our prayer is that we would uh, more and more uh, begin to come to know with reality the three persons of this one God in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.